And welcome to today's podcast. Um, I'm Pete Smith, Director for the Centre for Disability Employment Research and Practice. And today we'll be joined by Richard Luking. Uh, Rich is the co-director of the Centre for Transition and Career Innovation for Youth with Disabilities and is a research professor in the Department of Counselling, Higher Education and Special Education in the School of Education at the University of Maryland. Uh, that's a bit of a mouthful. Um, during, um, uh, previously, prior to that, um, for the previous 28 years, Rich was the president of Transcend uh, Inc., a national nonprofit organization that was focused on improving employment success for people with disabilities. Uh, during that time, uh, he was responsible for the implementation of numerous model demonstration and research projects related to school to work transition and competitive integrated employment uh, of individuals with disabilities. Um, they conducted, uh, I think Rich has joined us. Good morning, Rich. Yes, hello, Peter. Excellent. Um, okay, um, I can hardly hear you there, but um, we can get a little bit closer to the mic, Rich. Okay, how's this? <laughs> yeah, that sounds all right. Okay, so, great. Um, um, welcome. I was just reading your bio there, and, and you have a very rich history of um, working in the area of um, uh, transition to work for you uh, from school. Um, can you tell me a little bit about why that's been your interest over the, your what appears to be a very long period of, of your life journey? I think the easiest way to answer that would be to say that uh, it became clear to me early in my career, which which by the way is is uh, winding down now. It's been well over uh, forty five years that I've been at this, uh, but the. Um, the, it became clear to me early on that uh, there were lots of people, young people who were, uh, first of all, in my early career, weren't even, weren't even able to go to school because the law didn't um, mandate that for them. So they were excluded because of their disability. And um, the ones that did go to school had a tough time making it after. So, so it became an interest of mine to see what might be done to um, correct that circumstance. And so... Um, most of my work, especially over the last uh, 35 years or so, has been directed at uh, figuring out the best ways to make it happen so that any youth with any disability can uh, reasonably expect to be an employed adult. And uh, that kind of, that kind of um, base, basic assumption that anybody who wants to work can is what, is what has driven uh, the work that, that I've done over the past uh, in this area. So um, that's, that's a long answer to your question, but my start, my start became kind of, <laughs> kind of, a, kind of a, a long-term mission. So. Yeah, it's interesting you say that long-term mission. We, we recently had um, Trevor Parmenter on one of our podcasts, and as you probably well know, he's been my mentor for decades and certainly is a patron of the centre. But Trevor was lamenting the fact that, that you know, he started these transition processes back in the 60s and 70s, and, and we're still still not getting it right. We're still not getting the buy-in that we should have, even after all of these years. Yeah, well, I would, I would agree partially with that statement, Peter. Um, and um, by the way, Trevor is well known around the world and, and is really a, a revered um, person in this field, has done a lot of great work. Um, so I wouldn't, uh, but I do, I do disagree with him slightly on this point because um, the good news, the bad news is that uh, we haven't been able to take this where we uh, can go. And there's too many young people with disabilities 
who face dim prospects of adult employment. But the good news is, and this is the important part, the good news is we know how to make it happen. You know, whereas 45 years ago we were fairly clueless, uh, we now have we now have the strategies, the methodologies, the uh, processes uh, to make it happen for any youth with any disability, uh, no matter where they live, to to become uh, a reasonably successfully employed adult. Now, we we know how to do it. Doesn't mean it happens and, and for everybody and. The challenge for us now in the field is to take that to scale. How do we make sure that we can take what we know and apply it not just in pockets, uh, but everywhere? So that's that's our, our next challenge. Right. You ran uh, some really interesting pilots in Maryland where you, where you were able to start the transition process a couple of years before school ended. Um, those programs, are, I'm guessing, are still going along? Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, we had a very um, longstanding uh, and very successful, um, we called it a demonstration project, and, it, and the name of it was the Maryland Seamless Transition uh, Initiative. And uh, that project was designed to, it was implemented in about half of the school districts in the state of Maryland here in the U.S., and um, was over a thousand students participated in that in that demonstration, and about eighty percent of them ended up with employment uh, as they exited school, or they were uh, in post secondary education in a uh, training program that would lead to uh, employment. So um, you mentioned they started early. So the idea was that beginning two years prior to their projected exit from school, they would begin. Uh, experiencing uh, work outside of the classroom, outside of the school building, in real workplaces with with employers in their communities. And these work experiences would be um, various kinds. Sometimes they would be um, unpaid, where they would sample work uh, tasks. Sometimes they would be uh, unpaid internships, where they would do various tasks in a company uh, to learn how to work to learn um, how to get along at work, to learn how to um, work together with coworkers, to follow supervision, all of the things it takes to be a good worker. So uh, these students did that um, starting uh, two years before they exited, and, and that culminated in a at least one paid job. And by paid job, we mean where they were getting wages from a community employer for the work that they were doing prior to school exit. So their resume would have those work experiences and those paid jobs uh, as they exited school. But more important than that, they would have had the work experience that would, sh that, uh, would help them understand how to be good workers. And, and critical to many, many youth with disabilities, it also helped expose them to what they might be interested in as a career, a job and a career, so that many students would do things that they simply didn't like, but that, that told them something that they would try something else. So a, a work experience that wasn't something a student likes doesn't mean it wasn't success. It just means that um, they just built on their, their wealth of experience about what they like to do and what they can do. But uh, again, the, uh, the important thing also is that they also learned what they needed in terms of accommodations and supports in order to succeed in the workplace, whether that was um, some sort of task restructuring so that they could perform the tasks to the satisfaction of the employer 
whether it was some physical accommodation or whether it was some sort of occasional coaching where somebody would come to the workplace and help them uh, organize their work tasks and perform them. So um, anyway, the, the, this, the, this, it was a very successful model. And in fact, uh, Peter, um, the, um, the U.S. Has, has some new legislation that's passed in 2014, and it's just now becoming enacted uh, throughout the country. And it requires uh, the state vocational rehabilitation agencies. Those are the agencies that are responsible for helping uh, provide services to help people with disabilities become employed. The legislation is called the Workforce Opportunities Innovation Act of, 19, of 2014. And it includes a provision that um, requires state vocational rehabilitation agencies to pay for services to youth while they're still in school. And I'm proud to say that a lot, that provision in that legislation was was uh, due in large part by the success we had with the, the project I just described. Well, that, that, that's a brilliant outcome. And it, I'm listening to this and, and you know, forgive me, I've, I've actually watched that program for quite a few years and it super impressed me. It seems to point to two things. Uh, one would be that without a policy initiative that points to it and enables it, it, it may be difficult for these programs to get off the ground. But importantly, the other thing that, that, that I'm thinking is that this would have had a significant impact on parents and their beliefs around their child's work capacity. Uh, yes, excellent point, Peter. The, there's two things that predict, that best predict post-school employment for, for students and youth with disabilities. The first is the work experiences that I described. If students have work experiences while they're still in secondary school, they're usually four or five times more likely to be employed as adults than those who don't have those experiences. But the other thing that predicts adult employment is family expectations of employment. In other words, those parents and families who expect and believe that employment is going to happen for these youth, those youth are obviously more likely to become employed. So, so. Um, Part of this, part of the um, issue then is that how do we help parents adopt that kind of um, expectation? And um, so it, it's a process because uh, many times, uh, not only parents and family members, but also special education professionals themselves might need to be convinced that certain people are, are employable. Um, and it takes a certain uh, exposure to what it takes to make that happen. And one of the things that we found, Peter, is that many families adopt that kind of expectation when they see other families uh, with people with disabilities that they know go to work and succeed. So part of it is just having that exposure and understanding what's, what, what can happen. Um, so that's, that's the best way to help the families uh, adopt that kind of expectation. Right. That, that's almost, you know, we use this in, in one organization we worked with um, and still do, is a sort of a snowballing approach. We, we found the, the people that were really keen, right, to really engage straight away. And they're generally a small number of people. And once they engaged and people started to see success, you know, there are people sitting in the wings watching, waiting. And that seemed to inspire other people to then go, I want a bit of this and I want a bit of that. And that seems to indicate that that we're going to have to do a lot of hard work at the beginning to to illustrate how this works and how it can be comfortable for families to engage in it. And then once we do that, there's more buy-in and more buy-in and that snowballing effect takes off. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the other thing about starting early, getting students out into the workplace well before they actually is another way to make that happen. Right. Now, in, in many countries, and certainly here in Australia, even though we have the NDIS, which is a, essentially a, a lifelong support mechanism, we still have the politics around education, where the education component doesn't necessarily really engage with employment, but it, it kind of keeps it at arm's length. And we've only just got to the point where we were able to get into schools and really explore employment with any seriousness in the final year, and we're trying to get it further further along. But I wonder if this points to the fact that we probably have to engage in other parts of the process and the school system so they get comfortable with the employment, the idea of employment. But as, as you mentioned earlier on, there's, there's almost still an exclusionary attitude among some people where those people can work, those people won't work, we'll send those ones there, those ones we're not going to. That seemed to be part of the challenge as well. Yes, and I think particularly those students who are going to need uh, extra support to make employment happen um, and who have, um, uh, you know, kind of extensive support needs, it's often difficult to convince other people that they have the ability to be employed. Um, so it does take um, a concerted effort in the educational environment to uh, help expose those students to actual work tasks. And the best place to expose them to those work tasks are in real workplaces outside of the school. So we've had a lot of success, Peter, with, with school systems who were initially uh, very hesitant to consider that kind of arrangement for these students. And um, once we were able to demonstrate that with a couple of um, demonstration projects, uh, many school districts adopted that as part of their educational curriculum. In other words, uh, they would some of the, some of the school systems we work with actually worked it out so that much of their last two years of public education was spent outside of the classroom. Um, these are students who wouldn't be taking an academic curriculum because of the nature of their disability but they were still being educated within the public school system. And that education took place uh, and now takes place uh, in, in various community locations so that the students are exposed to work and have all those experiences that I talked about earlier. Right. So that almost is a case of, of flicking the education switch so that it becomes really vocation-focused rather than potentially what schools seem to be focused on these days, which is everybody's going to university, but mm -hmm, by switching mm -hmm. it to, you know what, not everybody wants to, not everybody has to, we're going to focus on vocational skills, employability skills. Clearly, we're going to get better outcomes for people with a disability. Oh, yeah, and that's not, not, that's not to deny they don't want to go to higher education, but I just think that from a, from a practical perspective, isn't that the part of what school is supposed to oh, do? Oh, yeah. No, no question. Employment? No question, no question. And actually, everything I said about being exposed to work really applies to, to any student with any disability, regardless of what their long-term career um, goals are. Uh, for, um, in, the, in the U.S., we have uh, basically a two-tiered educational um, track. Students who are going to get a regular high school diploma is one, and students who are going to get a certificate of attendance is another. That happens, uh, it, that, I'm oversimplifying it, but that's basically the way it, it works here. And so um, those students who are going to go on to finish their high school diploma, get a regular high school diploma, 
and perhaps even go on to post-secondary education. Um, everything I said about work experience applies as much to them as it applies to those youth who are not going to go on to any kind of post-secondary education. The idea is that work exposes students to what they might develop as career preferences. Uh, in fact, what we'd like to say is that exposure precedes interest. So you can't find out what you're interested in until you've been exposed to various things, and work experiences do that. And so uh, regardless of one's path uh, through the educational system, work experiences can and should be an essential part of that for students with disabilities. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Uh, I, I mean, I'm starting to reflect on on the education process, and I'm scratching my head sometimes because it doesn't seem to be focused on on giving people those vocational things. You I mean you talked about trying to understand what your maybe your work path would look like, and and I make the observation that you know I spent. I guess 30 years of doing work experience before I worked out what I wanted to do, maybe 20 years, but, um, you know, in the workforce, I was working before I kind of went, you know, what do I really want to do? Um, and yet we are asking kids of school, even today, and kids with, with cognitive impairment to go, hey, guess what? Make up your mind in the last couple of months because mm -hmm, you're going mm -hmm. to work. That, mm -hmm. that just seems almost yep. discriminatory. Yep. yep, yep, it does. Yeah, you mentioned uh, students with cognitive disabilities and, and many of those who have um, even significant cognitive disabilities who uh, we've worked with in various school systems have exited school, not only with exposure to work, like I'm talking about with work experiences, but they actually left school already employed. In other words, uh, they had a job uh, while they were still students that became their adult job once they formerly formerly exited school, uh, formally, I mean. So um, that is a, um, that's one way to make sure that they're going to be employed is to already have them working at the time they leave school. The other thing that's critical, though, for many of those students is that many of them will need ongoing support in order to remain employed and uh, perhaps even advance in employment. And these are, these are people who might be served in what we call in the U.S. supported employment, and I believe in Australia, open employment, um, that uh, the idea of having them connected to those organizations that can support them in their continued work before they exit school is another aspect that contributes to their long-term employment success. Right. And that, that points to potentially something, you know, like taking a discovery process and starting that in the school system so that yes. everybody that may be engaged in the employment process post-school are already engaged in that process. And you, you mentioned families earlier on. And I think one of the hallmarks of a discovery process is that the family engagement. So you've yes. got this process where employers and family are heavily engaged in, in this process and they're, they're, they're already brought into the fact that, guess what, a life in the community, a normal job in the community is, is part of that outcome. Yep, yep. And uh, it's, it's um, good that you mentioned the discovery process because um, actually uh, one of the ways that we look at it is that work experiences are an actual part of the discovery process. In fact, um, as individuals are experiencing work in various um, places, uh, they and the people that support them are, are discovering uh, at that time things like skills and preferences and so forth that 
will contribute to their later employment success. So discovery is kind of a fluid process. Um, and we, we um, have a, an approach we call an asset-based inventory. And uh, we, we call it an asset-based because we want to look at what students can do rather than what they can't do. And so we want to take an inventory that basically kind of tracks what kinds of things they want to do, what kinds of things they like to do, what kinds of things they can do, what kinds of things they're capable of doing, and what kinds of support they might need to be able to do those things as they proceed toward their work life. And so that inventory, which is a type of discovery process, is something that basically is updated continuously through their last two years of school so that when they exit school, as I said, the ideal would be that they're already working, that they have a job they can keep. Right. Is this your way to work online PD tool you're talking about? Yes, it is. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. When I, when I, you know, one of the things that we seem to forget about, uh, about discovering, particularly the work experience component of it, is that all the evidence suggests and highlights that every work experience is a skill building opportunity, a set of skills that the individual is not going to lose. Um, so it almost as though what we've forgotten is that we can use work experiences not simply to work at what might be the ideal in work environment, but also as a skill building tool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. And, and yet, <laughs> this will sound weird, um, but yet we don't see it often. Often school systems seem to focus on everybody gets two work experiences and potentially everybody's on the same bus to the same place, to the same employer. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, um, that still happens, unfortunately. Um, and um, the, uh, the other thing that's really critical to all of the things that I'm describing is that it should be um, person and individually centered. In other words, you don't want to send all the students to the same workplace. The students should go to a workplace that is dictated by their asset-based inventory and their interests and see what they and let them try out something um, that's important to them, not what's convenient uh, to send um, six or ten students to the same employer to do some work that it really might not be meaningful to them, um, but is convenient to organize by the school people. Um, so, which by the way, uh, you know, that's part of the deal about working with the education system is to, to help them do this uh, with the personnel they have available. And this is something that we've worked with a lot over the years to figure out how to um, help teachers, how to help uh, instructional staff, um, go out and meet employers and arrange these workplaces so that uh, the students can go there and, and be successful. Um, and it's, it, there's a little bit of logistics involved in making that happen, getting them there, making sure that they're um, uh, observed and, uh, and supported when they're at work, and then making sure that the employers are comfortable and uh, also effective at uh, having these students do tasks within their workplace. If you were starting from scratch right now and someone said, look, you can have whatever you need, what would be the ideal ingredients to, in, ingredients to have in, in a transition to work program from school to work? Okay, well. Um, <laughs> it's a big question. Yeah, I, I like, well, I like, I like having that blank slate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, number one, we've given oh, you a blank slate. Oh, I, can, I can do whatever I want? Oh, that's great. Absolutely. Okay, well, 
Uh, what, I'll, what I'll tell you is, and this is based on our work and the research that uh, has proven that, it, that it's effective. So um, I'll, I'll give you several things that uh, I think are I, I would expect to have in place. And so the first thing would be uh, would be school system people who are trained and competent at, at uh, helping youth get into the workplace and, and um, uh, do, do tasks there that can help them build the resumes and their skills. So that's number one, trained staff. Number two, um, families who are given the information and the support and the opportunity to learn uh, the importance of work and that work is an expectation that can be reasonably had for, for their uh, family members with disabilities. So that's number two. Number three would be uh, the ability to um, negotiate with employers to bring these students into their workplace. Um, so that's a that's a that's a skill set that not not everybody is uh, has in, in in their professional training, but I think should be an important part of the training. So that training of the of the educational staff that I mentioned earlier should include how to interact with and negotiate with employers and support employers as they're bringing students into their workplace. And um, number number three, am I on three or four? I can't remember. Anyway. Anyway, oh yeah, I'm on number four now. So number four would be that um, there would be a, a system of support available for the students after they lack access school. So um, if we have a school system that's really good at making this happen, and if we have families that really believe that it happens, and we have employers that are well-suited to bring students into their workplace, then to have, if they exit school and there's nobody there to support them, all that work would be for naught if there's not somebody there to keep uh, supporting a student, uh, the, the young adult in their workplace. So then that, that, the next thing I would, would, would like to see in place would be well-skilled uh, staff in the adult service programs that could help them do that help them continue their employment success and funding for those programs that are geared toward that activity. Right. There are two things that stand out there uh, amongst all of them, which are you know, clearly very important, but the, the ability of people consultants to engage with employers and post employment supports. These seem to be two things that, realistically should be quite simple because engaging with employers is something we do, everybody does day in and day out when they go into a shop and buy something, they're engaging with an employer. Yet these two factors seem to be very hard to get right for some reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are, you, are you seeing any clues, any pointers that might suggest why and how we rectify this? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, and I mean, this is something I've been um, kind of – preaching for years and years that um, if our jobs are to help people become ready for and, 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 uh, and, and succeed in jobs, then we, the people that help the individuals and the students, need to be skilled at talking to people that have the jobs, in other words, the employers. So um, by that, I mean one of the most important tasks that we can have, one of the most important skills that we can have in, in this work is to be able to um, identify and employers and negotiate with them for work, work experiences and jobs and to support those employers in making that happen. That's, that's a skill set that's not taught in most pre-service professional 
education programs. In other words, the special education teachers and people in the field aren't taught how to do that. Um, There are lots of techniques that are part of that that are easily taught, easily learned, and are also very successful. The other thing we've done, Peter, over the years is we've interviewed employers and we've, we've asked them, what does it take for you to consider bringing individuals with disabilities into your workplace? And um, the, one of the most striking responses we've heard is we are not interested in being sold on the value of hiring individuals with people with disabilities because it's a good community citizen thing to do. But um, what they told us was, if anybody can show us how an individual can help our operation, we're very interested in working with them. And even if employers don't have available jobs, in other words, um, even if they um, don't have job listings or job openings, it doesn't mean they're not hiring. It means that somebody hasn't shown them there are tasks that, are, that need to be done in the workplace that somebody can be brought in to do. Um, so that's all part of the negotiation process. Um, See, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Um, keep going. No, that's all right. Okay. Look, it, it, it points to something that, I, that often people get a little bit shocked when I say this. And, and one of the things I generally start you know, workshops and things with is that there's absolutely no reason for any employer to employ anybody, let alone someone with a disability, unless they have a skill that they can exploit for profit. Yep. And people people struggle with that. And yep. and usually what I what I come across, which infuriates the hell out of me, is this is we the employment system is still wedded to the idea that they need to tell employers that people with disabilities are more reliable. They don't have sick days and which I liken to selling to puppies, selling puppies to people. <laughs> um, you know, it's right up there with reverse yeah. marketing, which I yeah, think yeah, is, yeah. is, you know, well, okay. Um, I'll stop right there on that one. But I, I think you, the point you made around employers is quite fascinating. We've developed a program with, with a, a very significant provider in Australia that, uh, so that we, they can work with employers because very big employers, uh, international companies have said to them, we'd love to employ someone with a disability. We just don't know how. And that's striking in, in, a, in a multiverse where, where everybody seems to have diversity policies and inclusion offices and this sort of stuff, but they seem to have not know how to do it for someone with a disability, which I would have thought would have been very easy. Well, you know, one of the big mistakes that we've made in this work, Peter, is to try to sell employers on the idea of hiring people with disabilities. Uh, There are almost no employers in the business of hiring people with disabilities. They're in the business of doing whatever it is that they produce or sell uh, or provide a service. And so um, the issue is not, Uh, should we convince them to hire people with disabilities? The issue is how can we position ourselves and the people we represent to offer something the employer needs? So, um, so can I, can I tell you a quick story about how that works? How that Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so many years ago um, and, and we've seen this play out thousands of times uh, since, but one of the first things that gave us an aha moment was we realized that, if we went to employers and say something like, um, we work with students with disabilities, uh, they go to a special ed program, they, they, they may be able to help you, we don't know, but they have a disability, do you have any jobs they can do? 
Well, first of all, how is an employer going to know what jobs they might have they can do if they don't know the person? And, and actually, the most important disability awareness we can do for employers is to introduce them to an individual who has a disability. That, that's the way it happens. So anyway, the story is this. Um, we taught uh, people to go out to employers and do what we call informational interviews. In other words, we're not there to sell them on hiring people with disabilities. We're there to find out what the employer does and how they get how they get the work done. So um, the, the 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 idea was to call the employer up and say something like this: We work with high school students who are interested in careers in your industry. Do you mind if I stop by and visit your place so that I can understand how you get the work done and what you need? And so that's the easy way to get your foot in the door. You're not trying to sell them on any particular uh, person with a disability. You're just there to learn and. Almost every time you ask it that way, employers say, sure, come on over, we'll set up a time. So in this particular case, one of, the, one of our high school um, transition specialists called an employer, and it happened to be a, um, a, a big department store. And he called up the manager and says, I work with high school students, some of whom are interested in working in retail. Um, to better prepare them for careers in that field, can I come by and visit your store? So to make a long story short, uh, the, the transition specialist went to the store, uh, observed the operation, found out that um, every time a delivery of new merchandise came to the back of the store, sales clerks had to leave the floor, go back to the, to the back of the store, help unload the trucks, and put it away in the places they stored in the back of the store. Meanwhile, customers were in the store not being waited on, and so they were potentially losing sales. So the transition specialist said something like this to the employer, you know, thanks for letting me come here and observe this. Um, this has really been useful. You know, I've noticed that when these delivery trucks come with the goods, your sales clerks have to leave the sales clerk and you're probably missing some sales. I know a student who is really good at taking things off of the truck and putting it in the right place and, and can organize things really well. If you hire a person to do that task, the sales clerks can stay in the store and sell more merchandise. Um, would you be open to giving that a try? And through a series of negotiations, an individual was hired to do that task, to unload and, and move the packages and, and put them in their storage locations in the back of the store. Um, this is a person who couldn't read, um, couldn't tell time, um, could, uh, verbalization was, was difficult but was really good at this task. And if we would have brought that individual into the store and said, do you have any jobs for this guy? The employer would never take one look at him and say, there's no way. But we were able to offer a, um, a way that that operation could be improved by bringing this per per person in. So the person then, then becomes seen as not as a person with a disability, but as a person who's a team member at that store, helping them succeed in their sales goals. So, that's, that encapsulates the idea of what I'm talking about. Now, that's happened many different ways and many different kinds of employers, but I think what that uh, allows, what that, had shown, what that has shown us is that um, by going in and learning what employers do and helping them operate more, more efficiently, then you can get your foot in the door in ways that wouldn't be possible if you just said, how about hiring somebody with a disability? Right, and, and that's certainly what we've experienced, and one of the things I've always found is that if you – 
talk to an employer and and you want them to talk about their business, I've yet to meet an employer that doesn't want to talk about their business. Absolutely. Um, people are proud of their business. And, and it also points to the other aspect of part of the job development process that we're using should be about, well, you know, what I call lurking with intent. In other words, you, you're there, you're looking, you're trying to work out what are the things that are happening here that take people away from their tasks that earn money for the business. And as you said, loading stuff out of a truck into the warehouse at the back isn't making money. But, but it, 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 it also illustrates something that, that you know, and, and forgive me for saying this, but your work on mutuality has been very influential um, on, on my work. Uh, um, but it illustrates that idea that 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 condition of mutuality, reciprocity, is where employment happens. Oh gosh, yes. And and by the way, did did you say lurking with intent? I did actually. I, I think that's a great. I'm going to steal that. By all means, I love I love that. Yeah, that well, that's that, that's basically what an informational interview is. Uh, just kind of walking around and seeing how things get done. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that's you know it illustrates in in, in your book, um, which believe it or not is out of stock in Australia, and I'm still trying to get another copy because well, there's a, there's a new there's a new new edition out. I know. Uh, I, yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to get that. My, one of my staff stole my copy, and she's listening right now to this uh, podcast. Um, but it, it's really something that seems to be missing from the equation because we still have in some employment. Um, systems in Australia, this idea that uh, employers are bastards because they won't hire people with disabilities. But the reality is, you know, give them a reason to hire anybody. Yep, um, and, yep. and unless you do that, we, we don't have anything to talk about. Yep. Nope. Absolutely. And and that's getting back to my point about people. Um, it's, it's easy to teach people how to do what I just described uh, or lurking with intent. Um, but if they, you don't know that that's the way to do it, you don't you don't do it that way, and, and you're not successful. So it's just a matter of helping people develop the, the the skill and all that. The other thing that's important is that you have to believe that the individuals you're working with are employable. And um, this is another thing that we still are having to having to um, work on, not just with the families as we discussed earlier in this discussion, but but with the professionals who are working with these individuals, they have to believe that employability is possible. And so it behooves um, uh, the, the system of education, of, of teacher preparation, for example, or employment professional preparation to teach them how to do these skills so they understand what's possible and how to do it. You know, I, I think there's still this idea that, that you can employ someone to be an employment consultant and they'll automatically know what they're doing. And it goes to, in, in some instances, in some providers, you know, certainly a significant number of them, an inability or a lack of desire to invest in the development of their staff because this is a, a, a profession that requires a, a unique skill set that really doesn't exist in anybody as a norm. And that's I find is one of the struggles we're still having is getting people to recognize that this is a skill set. Yep, absolutely. Yep. It starts with the belief that it's possible, and then uh, you have to bolster that belief with uh, the kinds of skills that they, they can make that happen. And, uh, well, we've seen some amazing things happen as a result. But we, st we still have what we find, and certainly in our work in, in, with many providers, is we still find that 
a significant number of the staff leave during the training or not long after the training because they realise that they actually don't believe. And, and you know, I'll give you a story. I was doing some work in New Zealand and halfway through the first day of, the, of the, the, the program, one of the staff came up to me and she said, I want to thank you. And I went, oh, okay. I said, are you, you know, you're getting evaluated? She said, yeah, I have. She said, I've realised that I don't believe and that this really isn't probably the career for me. And I'm going to go back and let my employer know that I'm leaving um, because I probably should be working somewhere else. Terrifying, um, but also interesting that that as part of the training, I guess, what we should also be doing is giving people that opportunity to reflect and go, you know what, do I really believe everybody can work? Well, good point. Yeah, good point. Interesting story too. I mean, that's that's an example of how work experiences teach you what you don't like to do. <laughs> and um, the, the truth is not everybody wants to do this or um, is, 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 uh, has the kind of wherewithal to, to do it. And it's good that she found out before she failed at it. Yeah, let me jump forward to where we are now globally. Clearly, we've got some you know, the, the COVID situation. It's going to change the employment landscape and, and not for the better. What do you potentially see some of the challenges going forward that we, we might have to really think oh, about? Oh, yes. Yeah, good, good. Excellent question. It's a leading question. I no, know. no, it's an, it's an excellent question because we've been wrestling with this. And in fact, um, we've been working with... Um, the uh, U.S. Department of Labor Office of Disability Employment Policy on exactly this issue. Um, so here's what we're learning uh, just in this brief time we've been having to deal with this. One is, is that jobs are getting done differently so that um, people are working more remotely, which means they have to learn more, more technology and how to use it to be able to um, apply it in their circumstances. Um, we also find that uh, we can do a lot of this discovery stuff virtually or, or uh, through, through the use of technology, FaceTime, Zoom, etc. So that requires a, a, a set of uh, knowledge and skills on the part of the people that were supporting individuals to find and keep jobs. So there's that. Also, we're learning that employers are finding that they're doing the jobs differently now. And, and we may see a very big shift in how the work gets done. In fact, that whole story I told you about the, the retail store, we're already finding that um, people are getting their stuff delivered to their houses now um, rather than going to the store to get them. So that changes things. It changes the types of jobs that are available. So we have to learn that. So um, that's, just, that's just a couple of examples, how to get the job done through use of technology uh, learning about how employers are doing, getting their jobs done also. Um, that, that's, that's probably going to change many to many cases, I think, permanently, even after this uh, COVID crisis is past us. Um, so those, those are some good, a quick couple of things. Um, the rest of it, though, we don't know. We just don't know until we're through all of this. Even, yeah. even here in the U.S., and I'm sure that's true in Australia, we don't even know if the kids are going back to school in the fall. Um, so that, 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 that changes lots. Yeah, we've just ended our second lockdown here in Victoria and potentially we'll go to a higher level of lockdown in the next week. And certainly that's what I'm hearing. Oh, so yeah. that's going to... Yikes. Yeah, and, and which means we've, we've had, where are we, we were July, August, um, potentially September before we come out of this current lockdown phase. And, and we've now had in Victoria mandated face masks and in public and all this sort of stuff. So... If you look at it from that perspective, we will have had 
eight months of lockdown in Victoria. And that's going to have a significant impact on how yes. businesses operate, yes. let alone what businesses actually survive, right. Right. which potentially suggests that everything we think we know about employment is going to have to be relearned. Um, yes, I think, uh, or there's certain things of it anyway, that's going to have to be relearned. The two things I just said uh, as examples, but, but I think the, the process of helping people discover what they're good at, what they like to do, what kinds of support they need, and the process of meeting and talking and learning about employers' operations, the basics of that aren't going to change. Um, but we're going to have to do those things differently. So, right. um, and, and how, how differently, I guess, remains to be seen. Right. So a good discovery is still a good discovery. We just have exactly. to work out how exactly. are we going to do that going forward. Yep, um, yep. Yeah, so I would like to uh, be optimistic that um, – you know, as long as we have the belief in, uh, as long as we presume that everybody is employable, uh, that belief should carry over into whatever we're going to be faced with when this, this crisis is over. Um, it may not be that every it's going to happen right away for everybody. It may be that it's going to take a little bit more concerted effort than, than it would have otherwise. But that belief still should drive our work. That, that, yeah, and absolutely. I, I think that that's to me, that would be key. If you don't believe that everybody can work, then you shouldn't be doing this work. So one final thing. I think you're still there, Rich, are you? Um, I am. Yes, I am. Yep. Oh, good. Um, there was silence at my end. Um, look, one final word. I mean, this has been this has been really good, and it reinforces a lot of the things that, that we, we tend occasionally to forget. But a final word on transition – um, going forward, what would you have to say to people who are considering engaging in the transition process? Okay, well, uh, so so think of it this way. Uh, in transition, um, the research in transition can be summed up in three words. Work is good. Um, in other words, uh, with all the, the value of work experiences and preparing people for work is obviously good. Exposing youth to work is good. Um, helping them learn what they like to do is good. And, and, and transition, uh, the process of transition, work is both a, an intervention. In other words, it's an it's a educational strategy, but it's also the objective. Um, so we want students to, to benefit from their education by becoming employed adult citizens. So Work begets work, and so that's that's what I'd like people to leave with. Um, and by the way, Peter, is this okay if I, I, I uh, promote my book uh, here? And <laughs> Absolutely. Rich, if you don't, I will, so talk away. <laughs> okay. Well, I just want to say, so the book you mentioned earlier that you are referring to is called The Way to Work, How to Facilitate Work Experiences for Youth in Transition. And it's, uh, it's the second edition. It was just published earlier this year. The first edition was published back in 2009, so this is a, an update of all that. And it, it has uh, things about how to support parent, families and parents and also about how to work with employers. All, that, all that's in the book, and, and I think if people are interested, um, I'm sure you can help them find it. Yeah, look, I'm, uh, I'm trying, because of the, the COVID, the stock sort of limited in Australia, and I'm trying to get copies to, so we can put into our online bookstore. Yeah, so if, so if the other thing I want to say is um, I've had the, um, 
the, the pleasure of uh, b- visiting Australia three different times. Um, and, uh, you know, there are uh, pockets of success just like there are in the U.S. there. And it was great to, to see them and to visit them and to work with people about this. And so um, I, I feel as optimistic about what, what, is, what is possible in the U.S. and in Australia, because I'm assuming most of our audience is from one or the other of those places, uh, mostly Australia, I assume. But anyway, uh, you'd, be, you'd be amazed where our audience uh, comes from. Well, I know you're in Australia talking to me right now. So. <laughs> Absolutely. I haven't so, left my house in seven yeah. months. Oh, uh, well, when the crisis is over, I want to come visit. <laughs> I've got a, I have a spare bedroom. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, listen, thanks very much for having me on. Absolutely, Rich. It's my pleasure, as usual, to, to, to say hello and have a talk to you. And you've given us some valuable advice and reminded us of things we potentially forgot, but reinforced things that we know. So thank you very much for your time. It's been brilliant today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Rich. Thank you, everyone. And that ends our podcast today. <laughs>